Hello and welcome to Plugged In Politics, where we keep you plugged into the policy stakes and drama on Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Jace Wilkie, and as always, we have a lot to dive into. So this may be an early upload, but after an insane week, I am not about to miss out on this bandwagon to talk about these issues. So on the agenda today, we are going to be talking about the suspected Chinese spy balloon that flew over the American heartland, Democrats overhauling their primary schedule, and the Coke Network takes aim at Donald Trump. Make sure to support the show by following us on Twitter at Politics Plugged, where we post updates for new episodes, announcements, and current events. Also, make sure to submit your Q&A submissions in the box available on Spotify, where I will answer all of your burning questions in next week's episode. Now with all that out of the way, let's get straight into it. To start February, the country was gripped by the sighting of a suspected Chinese spy balloon that flew over the American heartland before being shot down by an F-22 fighter jet over the South Carolina coast. Now, this balloon was the size of three buses and was at an altitude of about 60,000 feet. Now, for context, commercial airliners typically fly between 33,000 to 42,000 feet, so this, this thing was pretty high up, man. <laughs> Now, according to Reuters, I feel like this is a pretty important thing to point out, American fighter jets can't usually exceed altitudes higher than 65,000 feet, so that's also something to keep in mind. Now, so what exactly happened last week? Well, we're going to look at the timeline here, exhibited by, you know, the Time and the National Review, and uh, just go through point by point, see what happened, and, you know, get my takes on it, okay? At this point in time, everyone and their grandmother, including their dog, has put out a take on this issue, so fuck it. Let's dive in. So the balloon first entered U.S. airspace on January 28th over the Aleutian Islands in Alaska. It then left U.S. airspace and flew over northwestern Canada before re-entering over northern Idaho and Montana on January 31st. It was at this time that sightings were recorded and uploaded to social media, creating a media maelstrom online. And throughout the week, the balloon passed over South Dakota, Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, before flying over North and South Carolina. Then on Thursday, Secretary Antony Blinken postponed his trip to Beijing that was supposed to take place on Friday. And then on Saturday, it was then shot down by a fighter jet off the coast of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Now, this created an immense amount of backlash on the Biden administration, uh, most of them pointing it to be a potential sign of weakness or incompetence, that he didn't immediately shoot it down once it entered U.S. airspace. Uh, this included multiple GOP members, such as uh, Senator Ted Cruz, and a lot of right-leaning media uh, conglomerates exhibited outrage that the balloon was not immediately shut down, uh, like Sean Hannity. We'll go on ahead and play all the clips for you. What happened with this spy balloon, it was an absolute disgrace. For a week, Biden sat there wringing his hands, unsure of what to do, demonstrating weakness. And after a week, after it had completed its mission, only then did Biden discover the courage to shoot the damn thing down. What he should have done is shot it down as soon as it entered U.S. airspace. I have another question. Why haven't we shot this balloon out of the sky? Oh, Joe Biden is the president. He is refusing to take any action as of now. Apparently, this has gone on for days. He won't even talk about it. He doesn't want to answer the questions about the little balloon. He doesn't have time for the Situation Room, where he should have been all day with our top military leaders. Joe, if you don't want to be president, if you can't handle it, if you don't want to work overtime, if it's too much work for you, you can go away, you can leave, and you can stay in Delaware and don't bother coming back. Now, it's important to note that once it did cross into U.S. airspace over Montana, Biden initially called to have the balloon shot down, but the Pentagon, led by Joint Chiefs of Staff Mark Milley, advised him not to shoot it down until it was over a large body of water. 
One of the biggest reasons cited was that the debris posed a threat to civilians on the ground. Um, I mean, we're talking about something that's the size of three fucking school buses and weighing around 2,000 pounds. So that kind of debris could hurt people. But at the same time, I understand some of the skepticism on this decision, seeing that, you know, it's in Montana. Who fucking lives there? (laughs) They also made the point that they wanted to observe its movement and confirm that it was indeed for surveillance. I'm also going to speculate that they did not want to damage any intelligence that they wanted to recover in order to see what China had allegedly been looking for. Like I said before, 2,000 pounds of a payload basically being dropped in the middle of, you know, hard contact land. That thing's going to be obliterated, my dude. One potential thing that they may have been trying to survey was the uh, three nuclear silo fields that are in Montana. Uh, additionally, another theory that's been proposed is that they were potentially prodding, uh, you know, U.S. air defense response systems, and the United States may have withheld air response in order to maintain secrecy of their air capabilities. Now, many in the U.S. media and politics have made the claim that this is unique and a slight to the U.S.'s response uh, to potential espionage. To sum up the responses, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted on February 4th, quote, I just spoke with our great American first president, Donald Trump. He would never have allowed China to fly over a spy balloon over our country and our military bases and assets. President Trump would have shot it down before it entered the U.S., and so would I, end quote. However, according to the Pentagon and Biden administration officials, there were three incidents under the Trump administration that Chinese balloons had drifted into U.S. airspace. Now, in response to this, Donald Trump former Defense Secretary Mark Esper, and former National Security Advisor John Bolton have all pushed back, citing that they had not been briefed or made aware of such incursions. The Biden official then clarified that these had just been discovered under the Biden admin. Now, I I think this little breakdown in communication is a little weird here. Uh, Supposedly, out of several different news networks, the Pentagon just straight up withheld this information from the Trump administration. Uh, I don't know how solid those claims are or those insights, but if it is indeed the case... Uh, It stirs up, I guess, some questions about whether or not the communication breakdown within the Trump administration is as concerning, or if not more concerning, than we originally thought. It's also important to note that another balloon had been over U.S. airspace in the early days of the Biden administration, but had left quite quickly. But compared to these past, uh, I guess, incursions with a balloon, this recent incident is unique based off of the path it took and the time it spent over critical nuclear sites. Uh, This one took a really elongated path, kind of like what I mentioned earlier. It went over the Aleutian Island archipelago off of Alaska before making its way down south through northwestern Canada and then over the American heartland and then spending an incredible amount of time just loitering over nuclear sites. Whereas the previous incursions spent small amounts of time over Texas and Florida. Now, this does fit the broader trend of the increased uh, deployment by China of these balloons over five different continents. Also, a new development over the weekend, there is another balloon that is drifting northward over Latin America. Now, China has pushed back against these claims of it being a spy balloon. They've gone on ahead and contested that it was a civilian unmanned airship for meteorological research that was blown off course. They also claimed that it had limited steering capabilities and lodged a formal complaint with the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. They then went on to say that the response to shoot it down was unwarranted and that China reserves the right for further action. Oh boy, buckle in guys. So this has essentially broken down almost all diplomatic ties following Blinken's postponement of his visit and China's increasing diversion of resources uh, to military pursuits. However, it would look like an absolute clown show if Blinken had gone while the balloon was still hovering over the United States. 
And I guess this brings up the question of, are we in a Cold War 2.0? Now, it's been speculated for years whether or not the United States and China are about to be bridged into basically another Cold War. And with this balloon incident, are we in the early stages of it? And I, I'm not going to lie, guys. I mean, potentially, this incident certainly provokes a, a degradation of communications between the United States and China. Also, I, I, I'd like to point out that the spy balloons certainly embodies like the spirit of the Cold War. I mean, call back to the U-2 incident in 1960, where a U.S. spy plane was shot down over the Soviet Union. Uh, this ultimately broke down the summit conference between the two countries at the time, and this feels very eerily reminiscent of uh, that incident, particularly with Antony Blinken canceling his trip to China. Now, whether or not there's any substantive like uh, evidence to say that we are in a Cold War, at least on a geopolitical scale, culturally, it certainly started. As soon as people started looking to the sky with anxiety, this issue will sit in the minds of many constituents, and this will seismically impact the 2024 election optics issues, and how the dominoes fall. U.S. relations with China is going to be one of the most uh, critical points of interest as far as political campaigns, policy initiatives, and cultural movements uh, are concerned. Now, China has explicitly stated that they do not wish for a Cold War scenario as both economies are intrinsically tied to each other in the modern era. And, and let's be frank, guys, this is true. And unfortunately, in the age of uh, globalism and economic trade on the geopolitical level, a Cold War and any additional sanctions that may come with it just aren't tenable. It's not sustainable. It would, it would wreck both countries, and it would have an absolute economic fallout for uh, any allies to both nations. However, this is very interesting to see, especially considering the trend that China is uh, beginning their militarization period under Xi Jinping's leadership. For example, after being re-elected to general secretary, he basically created what many news outlets have reported as being the war cabinet. Now, this has been speculated uh, for the purposes of eventually invading Taiwan to make true on the promise for the one China policy. However, those are speculated to take place anywhere by 2027. And I guess with this being the case, it's, I guess, a potential surveillance prodding if this is indeed a Chinese spy balloon uh, to understand or at least gain a uh, get some insight on a potential nuclear response on the United States' part if they were to indeed invade Taiwan. Now, I don't think in that scenario the United States would actually press the big red button. I don't even know if we'd posture it. But with China basically on the decline with the semiconductor and chip economic race, they've been increasingly pressed to take action in Taiwan. Uh, additionally, with their population on the decline and with that uh, coming economic downturn, They've definitely been looking to increase nationalistic support amongst the populace. And given the memes and chat logs and social media cycles going on in China, it's certainly done the trick. But I guess the question is, where do we go from here? With mounting pressure for the Biden administration to maintain communications with China, we just have to wait and see what intelligence can be recovered from the down balloon. We've already sent out ships and have collected uh, a significant amount of the payload in the ocean. And I guess from there, we're just going to have to see what that yields. Without that, I mean, any kind of move we make would just be a shot in the dark. But personally, I just think we all need to take a chill pill. Everybody that's involved with uh, foreign talks and relations uh, for both China and the United States just need to sit back, drink a Corona or a Long Island iced tea, and just, you know, chill the fuck out. <laughs> So, you know, man, so, you know, man, so, you know, man.
So last week, the DNC has changed their entire primary schedule for 2024. So for context, New Hampshire has always been the first primary on the previous schedules. It's held the badge of honor for being the first presidential primary every year since 1916. Now, the primary schedule this year will start in South Carolina on February 3rd, followed by New Hampshire and Nevada on February 6th, Georgia on February 13th, and Michigan on February 27th. Now, this comes after the 2020 primary began with the Iowa caucus and the New Hampshire primary, where election results faced major delays in Iowa. Also keep in mind that New Hampshire and Nevada and a majority of the initial states in the primaries were won by progressive candidate Bernie Sanders. Now, Biden's campaign was then resurrected by his wins in South Carolina and the Deep South. Now, all of the states that Biden picked up during this time period were won by Republicans in the general election. So the initial primary elections took place in Democratic-leaning states that voted for Sanders. And beginning the campaign in South Carolina now would help jumpstart any kind of centrist campaign. Now, the DNC has made the claim that this scheduled change was to help support and platform communities of color, which is true in the case that there is higher percentage of these communities in the voting population. However, make no mistake about it, this is, this is a bit of a cover story. In scheduling the primaries in this way, essentially the DNC has put their thumbs on the scale to ensure that Biden or any kind of centrist candidate that the DNC supports will have a springboard to jump ahead of any progressive challengers in the hopes that they can quickly drop out. Now, keep in mind, uh, Marion Williamson, a popular progressive author and activist that ran in 2020, has been making a concerted effort to visit New Hampshire and other states that were early on in previous primary schedules. And she does plan on tossing her hat in the ring in 2024. And with this kind of framework, it does seem very unappealing for uh, Biden or any potential centrist Democrat to run in those northeastern states as they tend to lean more progressive. Now, New Hampshire lawmakers have decried the decision by the DNC. Uh, for example, Governor Chris Sununu insists that New Hampshire will do everything in their power to ensure that they still have the first primary. Uh, this change in the schedule violates state law that New Hampshire should hold the first primary in the nation every year. Uh, from the DNC, this is a very concerning approach. Uh, New Hampshire, despite previously being a prized state in the eyes of the DNC, is always a contested state in general elections. Like, despite it being a northeastern state and having the pride and honor badge of being the first uh, Democratic primary every year, in 2016, Hillary Clinton only won 0.37 percentage points of the vote. And in 2020, Biden won by 7%, but Trump still held a sizable, uh, I guess, section of the population of the vote at 45%, whereas states like South Carolina overwhelmingly vote Republican in the general election. Uh, in 2016, it went 55% for Donald Trump, and in 2020, 54%. If the Dems are targeting states that are overwhelmingly voting Republican in order to ensure that centrists win the primary, it neglects the contested states. Primaries are not only meant to determine who the general election candidates are going to be, but they are also an excellent tool for galvanizing support for the general election. Uh, Trump's 2016 campaign is an excellent example of this. Uh, his efforts in contested states like Ohio and Pennsylvania at the time are a testament to this strategy. New Hampshire, in a sense, is basically getting snubbed, and with the GOP continuing to prioritize it over the 2022 midterms and the upcoming 2024 campaigns, there may be an opening for it to turn red. I think moving up Georgia, however, in the schedule is a really good idea. It still gets the image points of targeting communities of color while also establishing a presence in a contested state. Over the last two election cycles, uh, Georgia has been one of the main uh, critical points in any general election over the last two cycles. 
in 2020, basically being one of the big keys that handed Biden the presidency and the huge race between Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. But will this move bite the Democrats in the ass? I'm going to say probably. It'll be important that these primaries have a long cycle where it is at least somewhat contested to spur national dialogue and boost Democratic voter engagement. Whoever ends up being the centrist that the DNC pushes, they'll have a certain advantage as far as in the primaries, just based off of this lineup and schedule. However, it may have long-term general election woes. I, I just kind of view this like that old-fashioned meme of, uh, you know, Tom from Tom and Jerry shoving, you know, the big-ass shotgun barrel into the mouse hole and then basically having a no-you kind of moment with the barrel being, you know, shot right back in his face. But it remains to be seen. We still got a long time until 2024 comes around, but I just, I generally do not agree with this uh, primary rescheduling. So billionaire Charles Koch, the head of the deep-pocketed network, looks to support a single Republican candidate that is not Donald Trump in the 2024 GOP primaries. Recently, the CEO of Americans for Prosperity Action, which is the main political arm of the Koch network, Emily Seidel, wrote in a memo, quote, AFP Action is prepared to support a candidate in the Republican presidential primary who can lead our country forward and who can win, end quote. Also, an official within AFP Action confirmed to CNN that the network is not planning to support Donald Trump's presidential bid. So I think we need to sit back and, you know, kind of look at the context for this all. Now, this is from billion-dollar conglomerates of Coke Industries. Uh, so this is a full network of sub-companies that have sub-organizations that fund campaign initiatives, but not always directly. So following the uh, Supreme Court decision back in the Obama administration uh, for Citizens United, Essentially, campaign contributions do not need to be disclosed as long as they are not directly distributed to campaigns themselves. Uh, so let's say that I'm a billionaire, right? Shocking, I know. Uh, it'll happen one day. So let's say that I really want to help the Zodiac killer, Ted Cruz, win his election, right? So following the precedent set by the Supreme Court decision of Citizens United, I would not directly send any money to Ted Cruz's campaign. Instead, I would then divert my money into smaller little sub-companies that I own. And then from those sub-companies, create sub-organizations like Citizens United, and then use those interest groups to funnel money into direct campaign outreach initiatives. For example, these organizations would hire door knockers to go out to all the different communities within the state, district, or uh, contested area of election and have them speak to voters and vie for Ted Cruz's candidacy. Also within those organizations, I would send out little mail pieces that basically uh, listed out either Ted Cruz's qualities that you know seem or sell themselves to be beneficial to the community, or better yet, I would send out mail pieces that basically smear the campaign opposition, the other candidate that's going up against Ted Cruz. That's essentially what the Coke Network does. For better understanding of this entire, I guess, context, I would recommend that you check out the PBS documentary Dark Money. It's a very good documentary. It's really, really good at highlighting the issues within campaign finance contributions and how Citizens United has basically shifted the entire playing field. So according to Open Secrets, a nonprofit organization out of Washington, D.C. that tracks campaign data, approximately one-third of campaign contributions made to prevent Obama from winning the 2012 election came from the Koch network. It's important to state that Seidel noted that AFP and AFP Action participated in over 450 races in the 2022 midterms, 
knocking on 7 million doors and sending out over 100 million mail pieces. So yeah, this, this organization, this money network, has a massive reach. They have an unprecedented amount of impact on elections. However, this level of involvement in the primaries is unusual for the Koch network. Uh, typically, they sit out primary season and begin their funding initiatives during the general election. It's pretty clear that they want to oust Trump during the primary. Uh, during his time in the White House, Trump often sparred with Koch officials as they sharply criticized his administration's trade and immigration policies. For example, uh, the Koch network really benefits off of having uh, immigrant workers, uh, n undocumented immigrants that work under their uh, umbrella organization. Additionally, they didn't like him sparring with China and other off-seas markets that were highly impactful to their industries. However, it's important to note that on a few gray areas, they did meet agreements. Uh, for example, they benefited immensely from the 2017 tax cut bill that uh, Trump approved. Additionally, the Koch network plans on fundraising for congressional primary seats. Uh, after seeing 2022 and just basically the madness that ensued from it uh, with pretty batshit insane candidates basically getting on the ticket at Trump's behest, really ruffled some feathers within the Koch network and other uh, money industries that fuel the GOP campaign machine. Seidel is cited as saying, quote, the Republican Party's nominating bad candidates who are advocating for things that go against core American principles, end quote. So the only question left to really ask is, what potential candidates are the Koch network eyeing to at least support within the primary? Uh, a few come to mind right off the bat. Uh, first and foremost, uh, the Koch network has ties to former President Mike Pence, who has signaled and at least postured that he's planning a potential run. I don't think it's a good move to fund him, purely from the fact that he's just not polling well. The GOP base has basically abandoned him after Jan 6th. And he's just really not a he's really not a good candidate in the sense that he doesn't really provide energy. He doesn't really have a strong, cohesive message that really galvanizes support for the GOP. So I, 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 that's obviously a strikeout. Uh, another candidate would be former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, who has had really deep and extensive ties with the Koch network in the past. But again, he suffers a very similar issue as Mike Pence. He's not polling very well, and it's very unlikely that he has a realistic shot of winning the nomination. Then we have former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who is speculated to announce her primary run later this month. Again, has a couple of ties to the Koch network, but she suffers the same problems as the, as the first two, so again, strike three. Where it comes to be very interesting is that Ron DeSantis has ties to the Koch network. They helped fundraise and funnel money for his... Uh, gubernatorial races back in 2018 and in 2022, so it would not come as a surprise to me if they endorse Ron DeSantis and campaign on his part, particularly seeing that he has, at least at this point in time, the best chance of being Trump in the primary. So I think by just sitting back and looking at this situation and how the dominoes all kind of fit together, the odds are slowly stacking against Trump. Now that dark money is getting involved in this primary cycle, the jig might be up. That's the end of the podcast, and as always, I want to thank you all for listening in. Uh, you can support the show by following us on Twitter at Politics Plugged, and make sure to listen to new episodes every week on Spotify. I'll see you guys in the next one. Take it easy.